when you look around, uh, most of the uh, the entities that are solving problems are living things, including ourselves. And we don't. The, we, there's a reason as to why we don't accept any solutions, uh, and that is because some solutions are compatible with the with the properties of life, and some solutions are not. When you're uh, in the social domain, recursion is a huge problem, and therefore there is a need to have an accurate model about other agents. But if you're in a society where you and others have the same hardware, like in human society, then once you actually have that have that good model about other uh, agents, that means that you actually have a pretty good model about yourself. This is Brain Inspired. Hello, everyone. I'm Paul Middlebrooks. Today, I speak with Dale Lee, a neuroscientist who runs the Lee Lab for Learning and Decision Making at Johns Hopkins. Dale and I are familiar with each other uh, because we have overlapping interests in metacognition going back to when I was in graduate school, and I've always had great admiration for him. So in his lab, uh, they study learning and decision making, and in particular how animals use different strategies to solve problems. And he often uses eye movement tasks while recording neurons in awake behaving animals. We could have talked about all of that today, but instead we talk about his book, Birth of Intelligence from RNA to Artificial Intelligence. The central thesis of the book is that intelligence is inextricably linked to life and the need to self replicate. So we discuss that thesis. And the book covers a lot of the neuroscience and theory related to the learning and decision-making necessary for intelligence. But our discussion focuses on a few concepts that are in the book that maybe aren't as well-known or discussed as much when thinking about intelligence and the evolution uh, of intelligence. Concepts like division of labor to solve problems and how to delegate so as to optimize the division of labor. Uh, we talk about a theoretical framework called the principal-agent relationship and how we can use that framework to understand the roles of various functions and intelligence with respect to evolution. We discuss our sense of self and its relation to our sense of others. Uh, we talk about some of the negative emotions we experience as a consequence of having evolved multiple intelligent algorithms that are specialized for different circumstances uh, and the need to regulate and evaluate those algorithms. And we discuss plenty of other related topics as well. I think you'll find these ideas interesting and useful. If you value this podcast and you want to support it and hear the full versions of all the episodes and occasional separate bonus episodes, you can do that for next to nothing through Patreon. Go to braininspired.co and click the red Patreon button there. Go to the show notes at braininspired.co slash podcast slash 80 where I link to the book and where you can learn more about Dale and his work. And be sure to stick around to the end for a taste of Dale's DJing skills. All right, enjoy. Dale, it is uh, great to see you and thanks for coming onto my podcast here. Oh, thanks for having me. This is a great honor. Birth of Intelligence, from RNA to Artificial Intelligence. So first of all, I want to say thank you for writing the book. Uh, I very much enjoyed it and... It, it's, it's a struggle on my part because it covers so much. The book covers so many topics, 
Uh, today, we're only going to cover a few of those topics in the book, I imagine. Um, a few that, you know, stood out to me as novel and interesting, um, among which there were many. But you study decision-making and reinforcement learning and neuroeconomics and uh, related fields. Did your work... So I'm, I'm curious, did your work in those fields, and, and you have a background in economics as well, uh, did that kind of work that features prominently in the book, did that shape these bigger picture views that you express in the book about intelligence and evolution and AI, or have those uh, bigger picture views been in the background and informed your work throughout the years? I think it's both, actually. I think the um, the process was bidirectional. I think the reason why I got it attracted to the field of decision-making in the first place was because you know, ever since I was a kid, I was always interested in as what's intelligence, you know, a, a human special, um, what is thinking, you know, do we really have consciousness? <laughs> I think like many neuroscientists, those are the questions that I think attract people to neuroscience. And when I realized that I can study decision making in animals, and it, this is a not unique to human, it's a fundamental to the functions of the nervous system in practically all animals. And now I think that actually that goes beyond the animals. Mm -hmm. Um, that, uh, it, I, I was really, really attracted to the field because it seems like, um, decision making is really the global process that you can use to characterize everything that the brain does, right? So it, it was surprising to me a few years ago when I first realized that, oh, if I want to summarize the function of the brain in one word, what would that be? Is it going to be perception? No. <laughs> is it going to be memory? No. It's a decision making. Here's his decision making. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so that's why I studied decision making. And even though I'm not an AI researcher, I think about AI and I sort of pay a lot of attention to the papers that are coming out, at least in sort of, you know, high profile journals about the recent developments in AI and things like that a lot because it, it's all under the same umbrella. It, this, these are the things that are fascinating to me. And, and was economics just a, uh, a pit stop along the way? That was a fluke. <laughs> I I had um, as a as a high school student, I had given up um, science um, because oh, um, I I realized that you know, but I wanted to be a physicist when I was a kid, uh, and um, I met a few people like that actually in my career that they realized that you know they learn either you know erroneously or correctly that. You have to be a genius to be a physicist. <laughs> and you realize that you're not a genius and therefore you shouldn't waste your time trying to uh, make any contributions to physics. So you give up. And then you, uh, in fact, I won't name who that is, but one of, <laughs> one of our colleagues actually went through exactly the same path that he um, wanted to be a physicist and he gave up and he studied economics and then realized, oh, um, you know, decision making is actually a function of the brain and therefore I should study. Um, oh, is that right? Because it, you know, yeah, because decision making is something that a lot of economists are interested in as well. So you actually can go come to a study of decision making through many disciplines and economics is one of them. So many people of, uh, I'll say our generation, I'm a little, I think I'm a little bit younger than you, not much if I am, mm -hmm. but, uh, uh, I, you know, yeah. when I, <laughs> a little bit, yes. <laughs> when I was in uh, an undergrad, when I was an undergraduate, the university, which was the University of Texas, didn't even have a neuroscience program, you know, it wasn't even That's available. Right. So, so many people came from physics, from economics, from something else, I guess, um, Ramon E. Cajal, maybe an exception, you know, even those, even those old guys, they, they, and guys and gals came from other uh, disciplines, but that still has been happening. It's only recently that people are coming from neuroscience, which is a strange thing to think about. That's right. So, 
I feel like we are uh, extremely lucky, uh, speaking about old people, to live after Darwin and to benefit from the theory of evolution. I, I can't imagine living uh, without Darwin's theory of evolution, which is so useful as a guide to thinking about intelligence and so many things. Um, and it's also awe-inspiring to me to think of uh, all of the other theories that have yet to come, right? So, and eventually we'll, we will, well, I don't know if we'll be around, you know, to think this, but people in the future will think, oh, I can't believe people used to live without that theory, theory X. Do you think that we'll discover a more fundamental theory of life uh, beyond evolution? Or do you think we'll just continue to kind of refine evolutionary theory? I think it's close to the latter. So, uh, it's hard to imagine um, that we'll come up with a uh, framework that will completely replace um, Darwin's framework. That just seems unthinkable it, to it me. It does, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, but we still, there's still a lot of details that are unknown, right? So, um, as I cover a little bit, very superficially in, in, in my book, we know very little about how the, ori the life originated. Right. Uh, and that's a very hard problem. I, I think I said in the book that, you know, two most... Uh, challenging scientific questions in our time might be origin of universe and origin of life. And I'm much more interested in origin of life <laughs> uh, because it's a closer to home. And uh, we may someday learn uh, either by induction or deduction that, you know, this is how life evolved, you know, originated or must have originated. Uh, but we don't, I realized that actually this is something that I discovered um, through the process of writing the book. You know, I thought that there would be a good consensus in the scientific community, scientific community as to how the life originated by that, by now, mm. because I started hearing about the RNA world, you know, several decades ago, but there are still a lot of details that are missing. So, um, someday we may learn a lot more about, um, that problem, but that'll be still a, you know, some details in, in the big picture, right? Oh, I think that there are still already some, uh, pretty fascinating theories about, the origins of life, essentially, you know, there are three or four out floating around out there that are, I don't know, pretty attractive to me as theories, which we don't need to go into. Let's talk about intelligence. So as any good author uh, writing about intelligence would, you really start uh, with what is intelligence? Because um, as you point out in the book, there are just, you know, so many different definitions out there, so many versions of uh, what, what people, how people define intelligence. So mm -hmm. I will ask you, Dale, what is intelligence to you? Right. So to me, intelligence is the ability to make decisions, solve problems, but that's not enough uh, because uh, there are many life forms and even machines that can do that. Uh, but intelligence is truly an ability to solve problems under a variety of environments, not just one specific context because that's relatively easy. Um, that is changing in an, an, an uncertain fashion. And that's, I think, is a, a there's a substantial con consensus among these people that are studying intelligence that that's really essential part of intelligence. Mm -hmm. And this actually goes to the central motive that I had when I decided to write a book. And that is that I thought that there was a missing something really important missing in the definition. And that is that, you know, how do you know that a problem is solved, right? So you can give all kinds of problems. Uh, and problem solving, I think, has a two additional elements that I think is, are relatively ignored. You know, I'm not the first one to make this point, but one is agency. So if you're saying that, you know, somebody's solving a problem, there is a somebody that's solving the problem. Right. And then the other one is subjectivity, which is, 
you know, how do you know that the problem solved? And that uh, obviously has, you know, is closely related to the agency because obviously you're not, you know, the agent that's trying to solve the problem is not going to be satisfied until certain criteria are met. But if somebody else is trying to solve the same problem, then the solution might be different. Mm. Uh, so then does that mean that, you know, anything goes and, you know, no matter what happens, you can declare that, well, this problem solved, at least for somebody. It's very postmodernism. Right. And I, I don't like postmodernism yeah. <laughs> uh, because then why are we bothering to do science? We're, you know, as a scientist, we're pursuing some objectivity. And that's when I realized a, um, I think it's actually a deep connection between intelligence and life. Because when you look around, uh, most of the, uh, the entities that are solving problems are living things, including ourselves. And we don't, the, we, there's a reason as to why we don't accept any solutions. Uh, and that is because some solutions are compatible with the, with the properties of life, and some solutions are not. And therefore, I added one additional qualifier in the definition of intelligence, that intelligence is an ability to solve problems in a variety of environments for life. So that's a pretty important addition, I think, <laughs> because it really frames the rest of uh, the book, that you know, which we'll talk about here. But another interesting facet that you add is that you know, problem solving is has to be from the perspective of the problem solver, because like you just were talking about, one person's problem is another person's solution, essentially, or, you know, that's right. So so it has to be taken from each uh, life forms perspective. Mm -hmm. So this is uh, this opens up a, a, uh, a problem for AI, <laughs> essentially, in that, if intelligence requires, you know, life, then that means that AI is not intelligent. And, and this, you talk about this uh, in the book. So, so why isn't AI intelligent? Well, I think you can actually answer that question in more than one way. Um, you can consider AI as a machine that solves problems for human. Um, so AI has a life. It's not just AI's its own life. It's a human life. Uh, um, so you can consider AI just like any other tool. So this is a um, position that I uh, took through most of the book. That, you know, there is no fundamental difference, in my opinion, between AIs and any other tools that humans develop to enhance our productivity. And in that sense, um, AI is just like any other tools. And I don't think that's necessarily bad news for AI. And then the other one, you know, this is more in the domain of sci-fi is that, so is it possible then, you know, uh, someday the AI will have its own life and therefore it sort of begins to own its own intelligence? Um, I think that's a question for the future. I looked into the field of artificial life a little bit uh, while working on the book. Uh, and I think they're at a very, very elementary level. I think they're like trying to come up with sort of, you know, artificial cell membrane and... Even more elementary than us neuroscientists? <laughs> I think they're more yeah. elementary, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I hope that I'm not like, you know... Um, <laughs> Yeah, I, that that was my impression from from an outsider. Yeah, it, it's it's artificial life is pretty interesting though. But I mean, it makes you think. I mean, if, if life is necessary for intelligence, then mm -hmm. that might be the thing that we should all be studying is artificial life. No, it depends. I um, for what I think that uh, scientific research uh, should be beneficial to you know human society, uh, and I think it's artificial life. I think it's a fascinating topic. Um, and I think people are studying it. I think, I think it's a fascinating, yeah. uh, discipline. So we'll, we'll probably learn a lot more about 
what is life and how it originated. For example, if you try to create, uh, you know, artificial life uh, in a, in, a, in a laboratory, you know, one one possibility that I that I uh, speculated a lot while while working on this book is whether you know there are, is it, is it possible to have completely alternative sort of chemical forms of life, uh, or is it possible that mm. you know if you want to have a life using the you know atoms and you know particles and you know if you if you within the constraints of physics that the only way that you can have life is is something that's based upon nucleotides right yeah. uh, because until you actually find the life that is that has a completely different chemical basis we will not know the answer yeah uh, and that's uh, if if somebody's going to find out an answer to that question i think it'll be the people that are studying artificial life right because they'll try to come up with a life that's you know not that doesn't doesn't necessarily have you know bilipid layers and you know dnas and rnas etc cetera, etc cetera. and they may realize that someday they may actually be able to prove mathematically that um, it's not possible. And the only way to have life is is is, use, is to use uh, you know DNA and RNA and proteins, or, or at least maybe it would be maybe not um, maybe not mathematically impossible, but intractable because it would be such a complicated process. But because right. evolution yes, yes, has shaped right. us through so many twists exactly. and turns, so mm-hmm. um, <laughs> right. So if you add a constraint that it has to evolve, right? In other words, you just cannot, yeah, come you know come into being. I mean that that's a part of physical constraints that I was referring to that it, it has to be compatible with the origin of universe right it's where everything starts with you know, hydrogen hydrogen atoms et cetera et cetera so if you suddenly require it in the, as an initial conditions really extremely complicated molecules that that would that would not be that would not be reasonable well, thank God you didn't start the book with hydrogen atoms and you started with RNA <laughs> instead right but <laughs> so so you're okay calling AI uh, intelligent in that it um hangs on to our lapel as we, you know, because we're life. And so we create AI and therefore it is intelligent via us, right? But, but not mm-hmm. on its own. That's um, right. So, so what, would, what would satisfy you to consider AI intelligent? What, what would AI need to make it intelligent? Yeah, artificial life, right? So if there is a machine that has a capability of reproducing itself, because that is the essence of life, right? So Life, uh, I think, can be considered as a machine. I mean, the life is a machine, but it's a machine that can replicate itself mm-hmm. at the cellular level, not necessarily at the whole organism level. And therefore, if someday, um, if some, you know, if people can s- successfully build a machine that can start replicating itself, uh, then I, I don't see any logical objection to start treating that intelligence that's controlling that machine that's now replicating itself and our intelligence. Is death not a part of that story that, that the agent, the AI agent, for instance, well, let, I'll start with humans. So humans, we have something mm-hmm. at stake, right? Because we're going to um, perish, at least for now, right. we're going to perish, perish eventually. And mm-hmm. sure, we procreate and then we're, we've successfully passed on our genes, but then we still have, there's, there's something at stake that we have. And uh, if we were eternal beings, uh, would it be enough to just re- self-replicate? I mean, part because part of life is survival, right? And homeostasis and finding food. Is that part of the equation? Is uh, the AI agent doesn't want to be turned off because there is that uh, life at stake? <laughs> well, so if machine begins to self-replicate, in other words, if you have a built, you know, machine that is designed to or evolved to uh, self-replicate, it's going to start having exactly the same problems that, you know, other life forms have because 
there is a, um, this is a bit of a hand waving, but there is a something called second law of thermodynamics. Mm-mm. So even if you build it really, really strongly over time, uh, it's going to decay. It's going to, things going to break mm. down. Um, so, uh, you know, it means that it has to find parts, you know, that can replace the things that are broken. Uh, of course, you know, any intelligent machine will constantly need energy. So I think it, it's going to have the same problem, fundamentally the same problems that all other life forms have. They, there is a um, this movie that's really fascinating. Oh no! Uh, called the Automata. Oh, that I was released I mean, in oh, 2014. That's a, that's a new one. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. So uh, the reason why I wanted to mention this is because after I published the book, I actually watched that movie only after I published the book, the the first edition in Korean uh, in 2017, and um, that book kind of. Brought to my attention a gray area. The, the movie? Between a, yeah, sorry, the movie. Yeah. Uh, the machine that doesn't self-replicate and the machine that replicates. Something in between is a machine that can repair itself. Yes, yeah. <laughs> so that movie is about a machine, you know, a, a, a future society where humans actually made it illegal for machine to repair themselves because they figure that that's very dangerous things. If machine has a desire to repair itself, then it could, that in- desire could actually interfere with the human interest, uh, which is somewhat not, I, fundamentally the same sort of, uh, conflict of interest that, you know, someday people might have if we start having a machine that can, rep- you know, replicate itself. Yeah. Um, so I think there is a gray zone, gray area between repair and replication. Uh, and I, I, I'd like to put that aside uh, somewhat because I, I'm still struggling with that as to whether, you know, uh, we should uh, sort of extend the uh, the notion of life to include uh. something that could repair itself. Uh, because fundamentally, I think the repairing and replication, I think, shares a lot of process. And that, you know, both of those are basically uh, processes that are trying to go against the the force of second thermodynamics, law yeah. of thermodynamics, right? Because you like you need there is a there is a I don't want to be teleological, but um, there are a lot of things that you would deduce from the thing that's trying to maintain its original shape. Right. Because that's not going to happen just passively. And it's going to require energy and it'll, it'll have to do something in order to uh, make that happen. And it could, it's replication and repair, basically. In the book, you define life as self-replication, and and mm-hmm. so this is, this is maybe why you're saying you want to put that that gray yes, area aside. E- exactly. Offline, you had told me that there was that you weren't a hundred percent confident in some of the conclusions or you know a con- concluding premise uh, in the book. Is that what you're talking about? That that definition of life in the gray area? Um, no, this this is okay. I, I don't I don't I don't feel uncomfortable talking about this because. That doesn't completely destroy my argument uh, in that, you know, no matter what you do, no matter what you talk about, there will be always, you know, things are not always black and white. There are always gray area. And um, virus is a good example, right? Mm-hmm. It's neither alive nor dead. Mm-hmm. Um, right. But that doesn't really, you know, change the other uh, story uh, that I'm trying to sort of, you know, present. Uh, and I think repair might be one of those things as well. In other words, it's it's at the it's about you know it's in the boundary. It's, as I said, it's in a gray area, but that doesn't necessarily kill the entire argument because everything that I said could be easily sort of extended or slightly modified by including self replicating or self repairing machine. Is that is that going to be the next book, the gray area? No, I don't. <laughs> I don't think so. Okay. What do you think that? So you have in, intelligence inextricably bound to uh, life. 
Mm-hmm. So if something has life, is it automatically intelligent then? Does it possess, a, is there a gradient of intelligence then? The lowest being the simple bacterial cells or things of that nature? Bingo. Yes. Okay. So I, I think that, um, so when I, um, sort of, you know, tell my colleagues that I wrote a book about intelligence and the main reason that I wrote it is because I wanted to make this sort of comment that intelligence requires life or they're, you know, uh, they go together. Uh, a lot of people will try to give me a counterexample. So do you think that bacteria is intelligence? Yeah. I'll say, of course. <laughs> that's yeah. the reason, that's the, that's the part of the argument. Uh, but I'm not saying that bacteria are as intelligent as the human beings. <laughs> they're not fully consciously aware. <laughs> That's right. I mean, it's it's like any other physical quantity, right? We're heavier than bacteria. So why what prevents us from saying that we are more intelligent than bacteria? But still acknowledging that you know it has it has certain form of intelligence. So intelligence is uh, due is a function of life, and I'll just jump ahead through evolution, our brains have become more and more complex. Uh, is that complexification, uh, is that solely to increase our self-replication efficiency? Um, mostly. I'm not, I'm hesitant to say solely. Uh, well, sure. Yeah, um, we'll go yeah, because that sounds, yeah, that sounds a bit teleological because, um, you know, ev- evolution is, is a blind process. So, um, I, I'm hes- somewhat hesitant yeah, in attaching the, the, the purpose to that process. Yeah, the yes, language but, is a problem. I mean, it's that's right. But as a, as a as a first approximation, I think that captures the essence, right? So one other way to put it would be that if the the brain that's you know, hugely metabolically expensive, if that didn't enhance the survivability of the organism that harbors it, how how would it evolve? <laughs> right. So this is why, as you mentioned in the beginning. The Darwin's framework is so fundamental for everything in biology. It is interesting because even thinking about these things, uh, in, at least if you're me, you sort of think teleologically, and then you catch yourself you, you kind of using those words, you know, in your thought language, uh, and then you catch yourself, and then remember, well, there's no purpose, obviously, but you have to ha- have some way of speaking about the advancement of uh, evolution, and it always sounds purposeful. <laughs> Right. It's, I think that's okay. Yeah, and there is nothing too. wrong with it. As long as it, you remember at the end of the day that after you've finished making your argument that yeah. you had used teleological, teleological explanation as a, as a shortcut. And, um, you know, because otherwise you, you're going to have to just increase the number of words to try to make it sound a little more uh, precise. But uh, that makes it harder to understand things intuitively. So I, I think it's a good, you know, I think there's a, there's a, you can have a compromise. The idea, this idea that uh, intelligence requires life is uh, anti-functionalism essentially. It meaning that you know a functionalist, for instance, uh, would say that there are multiple different ways to realize intelligence, and and intelligence is an independent process from life and from the substrate uh, from which whatever intelligence it is from which it emerges. Oh, I said emerges. Uh, but have you had pushback on on the requirement of life for intelligence? No, I've been I've been keeping it at a low profile. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what, what do you mean? You wrote a book about it. How's that low profile? Right. Um, so <laughs> I'm yeah. So part of the reason is because um, you know I'm I'm a neuroscientist. I really didn't have a formal training in AI or philosophy. Uh-huh. I think I'm a. Um, I think the English uh, uses the term closet uh, philosopher. Okay. That you are doing a lot of philosophy, but 
without proper training and without necessarily reading all the literature. Um, so you mentioned functionalism. So that is somewhat sounds inconsistent. So because functionalism refers to um, the view that cognition doesn't depend upon a particular form of hardware. Yeah, that's the main form of functionalism right. that I that I understand. Yeah, e- exactly. And you know, I haven't. I think the last time that I that I heard the the word functionalism in that context is probably already more than ten years old. 10 wow. Years old. Oh, so, you, so you are a closet, way deep in the closet. <laughs> yes, well, it's been you know, it's been a, it's been a while. Yeah. So that I don't think it's necessarily inconsistent with my view because I'm not saying that. You know, many of the sub-modules or processes of intelligence, such as memory or, you know, object discrimination, you know, identification, border control cannot be implemented in the machine and it could be implemented in many different forms. I mean, it's been done, you know, there's steam engines and internal combustions and, uh, you know, nuclear powers. So, you know, there are many different forms of machines that can produce uh, mechanical energy. Uh, so why, you know, should that be an exception for other information processing machines. But that doesn't necessarily mean that when you try to build a the entirety of an intelligent machine, uh, that, you know, things that's made of any hardware can reproduce all the properties of intelligence, which, as I argue in the book, requires life, right? So unless you can complete the description of a mechanical system that can replicate itself, uh, my view is still not inconsistent with functionalism. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, no, I can see it. I was curious, you know, because there's a lot of talk these days uh, about um, things like multiple realizability, which is, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, related to functionalism, that that you can realize cognition, let's say, or, or, you know, behaviors in multiple different circuits of the brain, for instance, and and, and basically have the same kind of behavior. So, um, so I was just wondering if there was, you know, if you'd received pushback, <laughs> but I guess you're <laughs> keeping it on the down low. <laughs> Does it, does your podcast have any uh, philosophers in the audience? Oh yeah, we we talk philosophy. I mean, I'm not a trained philosopher, so it's ridiculous mm-hmm. for me to uh, try. It probably drives philosophers nuts, you know, to hear someone like me talk about philosophy. But right, I'm reading a lot more along those lines these days, and talking to a lot more people along those on the podcast along those lines. Uh, since I'm not in a lab doing research, so. Uh, I've got to spend my time somehow. I can't just make food for my kids all day long. Although that's what it seems like I do. So yeah, uh, we do. So I may, I may get, I may get pushback. Well, I may uh, be driving some people, you know, very uncomfortable. I don't know. I think you, def- I think that you made the case that it's not incompatible with functionalism. Thank you. Okay, so let's get into a few of the topics in the book. Like I said, there's just too many for us to <laughs> to go through the whole thing. But um, one of the things I wanted to talk about is the concept of division of labor. So, uh, like we were talking about evolution, uh, the evolution of intelligence is this, you know, long and tangled weave, right? And if intelligence is a product of that evolution, uh, one could argue that it's unlikely intelligence is multiply realizable, just like we were just talking about, or, you know, or that a functionalist account of intelligence, the way that we have it anyway, isn't uh, likely. So part of that story of evolution, uh, an important part as you see it, is what you describe as an early division of labor in the service of self-replication efficiency. Um, and hence, that it makes it part of the story of intelligence. And that is the story of how RNA divided its labor, its own labor, into DNA, which is a stable way to store information, and proteins mm-hmm. uh, to control the chemical reactions happening. If you could elaborate on that, that would be great. Like how, how you view RNA proteins and DNA as 
an early division of labor story with respect mm-hmm. to uh, evolving brains and life. So you already gave a good summary. Um, if you look around, all life forms on Earth basically rely on two different polymers, right? One is DNA that encodes information, and the other one is uh, proteins that, as you mentioned, catalyze all chemical reactions in the, in, in a cell. Um, and if you accept this sort of view that in order to have a life on Earth, that you need these two complicated polymers cooperating with one another, then it, you sort of get into this dilemma, which I think has been used a lot by creationists, that this is, you know, why they think that, you know, life was created by God, because it's unimaginable. It'll be a miracle. Only miracle can basically come up with <laughs> these two complicated um, <laughs> molecules at the same time. And there is a resolution, one you know, possible sort of way to get or get out of this dilemma, and that is that if you look, um, the third important polymer uh, in in uh, living cells, which is RNA, this actually has a dual functions, right? It can store information, and because it could have very complicated uh, three dimensional structures, it could also be a catalyst, and therefore that's what led to this. I think it's originally led to this hypothesis that in the beginning. The life actually may uh, consist of RNAs. Uh, but then why did life require, you know, DNA and proteins? And that's because, just like many things, if you try to do everything, the efficiency is not great, right? So uh, it's, you know, probably happened at some point early on on Earth that uh, when RNA had accidentally come up with a way to sort of delegate the process of storing information in something that looks very similar to RNA, but has a more stable chemical structure, uh, that is DNA, then it will Im- improve the efficiency of self-replication. Uh, and then when it also realized that, oh, if you can somehow recruit another chemical that has a more diverse uh, chemical shapes, so that you can catalyze more, many different chemical reactions uh, more efficiently, then it'll recruit another class of molecules, proteins. Uh, so that, to me, actually exemplifies something that I sort of refer to many times in the book, divisional labor and delegation, uh, because delegation comes, you know, inevitably into picture when you talk about divisional labor, because that means that you are not doing that job anymore and you're relying on somebody else. So if that somebody else screws up, then you go down together. Uh, but it's a worth taking risk because, you know, as long as you control the uh, the agent actually to maintain the original responsibility, then you know you're better off. I mean, these are ideas from economics, right? Well, uh, yeah, I think economists get some credit because uh, Adam. If you, I mean, I, I think many people know that Adam Smith uh, used this you know pin factory as an example uh-huh. of division of labor uh, as a means to maximize productivity, uh, and I think uh, because that book was so influential. Uh, I think it contributed to many people realizing this is actually a really, really uh, important process. Yeah. So, I, you know, Adam Smith is probably not the first one to think of, you know, the, the possibility that you can improve productivity by division of labor. But I think he really, really brought it to many people's attention. So that division of labor concept, and by the way, that automatically sounds teleological when you are talking about RNA delegating. That's right. Yes, yes. So I, I took the bait, <laughs> and it, you know, it's it, it makes it a lot easier to understand. So it does. It's a story. It yep. makes it, it makes it more into a story. 
Uh, and we like, right. as humans, we like stories because we anthropomorphize everything as well, which we'll get into. Exactly. But, uh, yes. So another That's important right. concept that, you know, that follows from this division of labor is the concept of principal-agent relationship. So, mm-hmm. so it's always a tacit uh, assumption that brains, you know, we, can, we, we always kind of, in a hand-wavy way, say, of course, brains are there for uh, helping us self-replicate, for helping our genes self-replicate. And um, Robert uh, Sapolsky uh, has this phrase, um, he says, sometimes a chicken is an egg's way of making another egg. And so you could translate that into neuroscience and say sometimes uh, a brain, or translate it into evolution, I guess, and say sometimes a brain is a genome's way of making another genome. But I didn't know that there was a formal theory uh, or you know description for this kind of relationship that can be applied, the principal-agent relationship. So what mm-hmm. is the principal-agent relationship with respect to uh, brains and genes? Principal-agent theory or principal-agent relationship is, is a, just like many other theories in economics, is a, is a mathematical theory uh, that uh, tries to uh, find a normative solution. Mm-hmm. In other words, what you should do. Uh, when you're delegating your responsibility to someone else, so when there's a division of labor, you know, we're, this is a, you know, trying to think more rigorously about how the division of labor could be optimized. Uh, because whenever you have a division of labor, there would be some asymmetry, right? So that, you know, those, um, place a principal who is trying to accomplish his own mission, who is hiring somebody else to delegate some responsibility. Uh, will not be in exactly the same position as an agent. And the most important thing that uh, pointed out in this in this context is uh, information asymmetry, right? So somewhat paradoxically, between principal and agent, agent has a lot more information because they're in the field. So take the example of insurance company and a customer that's buying the product, uh, you know, insurance product. So obviously, if you are driving your car around, you have way more, you have a lot more information about the moment-to-moment changes in the road condition, mm-hmm. uh, you know, which road is safe, et cetera, et cetera, you know, whether you're drunk or not. Insurance company doesn't get that kind of information, although it's, things are changing rapidly right, right, these days right. with AIT. <laughs> but there is that fundament, fundamental uh, information asymmetry. Somebody has more information. So since agent who wants to somehow, you know, uh, shape the behavior of agent uh, to his own liking – since the principal doesn't have all the information that agent that, that agent has access to, what kind of incentive should hmm. principal provide to the agent in order to uh, guarantee that the agent's behavior will be as good as to the principal? That's the essence of principal-agent theory or a relationship. And uh, I think that that has a many applications um, beyond economics. Obviously, it has a huge implications in political science, uh, yeah. Uh, because you can consider, you know, um, elected officials and voters as a as a problem of principal agent relationship, uh, because you know we elect somebody hoping and expecting that person will work uh, on my behalf to try to maximize my interest, but we know that that's the, the agents have their own agendas. <laughs> exa- exactly, uh, and I think that a few people have already pointed it out that this actually could be applied to biology mm-hmm. because we see division of labor occurring multiple, you know, in multiple levels. Well, I guess some symbiotic relationships could fall under this formalism, right? Uh, yes, I think so. But um, I think that um, symbiosis is, is a, I think is a, a relatively easy case, mm-hmm. right? Because there, there is no conflict because, you know, what's good for me is what's good for you. 
So it's almost like a single well, that's, agent. That's a, that's a mutual symbiosis. But I think, uh, you know, my biology is <laughs> way back in my past as well. But I thought that there were unequal uh, symbiotic relationships where one that's organism right. benefits yes, that's, more than that's, so. that's correct. Anyway, in the book, you make the case that genes and brains have this principal-agent uh, relationship, respectively. The reason, you know, I'd say in the book, I mentioned five assumptions of principal-agent theory or relationship. And the reason why I go over those five different assumptions is because uh, you can use principal agent relationship as an analogy to the relationship bit, uh, between brain and the genes. You know, that's already pretty fascinating. Oh, the relationship between brain and genes is like the relationship between like employer, employee and parents and children. Right, and, right. you know, uh, that's already fascinating, but analogy is not science, right? You know, we, there, there are many examples of analogies that have been completely false, even though in the beginning it sounded really, really compelling. Um, so, in order to see whether, you know, you can transplant a theory from one field to another, you really have to understand you know, and examine the, uh, the underlying assumptions. So, that's what I wanted to do in the book. Um, so, what are the assumptions of, uh, of uh, principal agent theory? And I found out that actually you can make a reasonable case that all those assumptions actually uh, apply uh, to the relationship between the brain and the genes. And therefore, you know, if you have certain theorems or certain theories on, you know, in the, in the, in the, in the area of uh, principal um, Asian relationship that you might actually found analogous solutions being uh, implemented in the, in the, in the brain evolution, for example. Mm -hmm. So, and those assumptions are actually relatively simple and straightforward. So one is that actions of agent has to affect the pay of the principal, right? So if you translate it into something that's more, uh, familiar to biology and in to the relationship between brain and the genes, what it means is that whatever the brain does, it's going to affect the, you know, the likelihood that the genes will be successfully replicated. And that's, it's obviously true, right? So, because, right. you know, if the brain decides to, uh, use a contraceptive, for example, then that will have a huge implication <laughs> as to whether its genes going to get replicated or not. <laughs> right. And then, um, another one is like the agent, as I mentioned earlier, agent has more information. Uh, and that's also obviously true. So our, in that case, our brain has more information than our genes. Of course, right. Because it, it, it is evolved. I mean, you know, many people study perceptual sort of systems of the brain. And the reason why perception is important is because the whole, the reason why the brain evolved was because if the genes themselves are trying to acquire information about the environment directly and then change the uh, the chemical machinery inside the cell to try to like produce different receptors and things like that. It's going to be very limited and slow. Yeah. yeah. Uh, this is why I use the analogy to Mars rovers uh, because brain is a is a real-time machine much more so than uh, than, than individual cells uh, and that's why um uh, that assumption also applies to the relationship with the brain and genes. Yeah. Et cetera, et cetera. Well, it's interesting. I, I feel a lot more like a brain than I feel like genes, whatever that means, <laughs> right? So, you know, well, that means I think you're your brain. <laughs> I'm a brain, right? But then, but really yes. I'm genes and I'm just a slave to my genes. Although I, like, like you're saying, this principal agent relationship means that I, when I say I, I mean my brain, have some independence and more knowledge uh, about the world and also can therefore 
destroy myself and go off and do things that are unhealthy and unhelpful for my genes. That's right, right. Which is the, the risk you run in a principal-agent relationship, right? That's exactly right. Yep, because you have to delegate. In other words, if the I use the Mars rovers, again, as an example to drive this um, drive message, drive this message home. And that is that uh, if humans on Earth try to control the Mars rovers using a joystick, uh, then there's no point of having a sophisticated AI in Mars. So if you want to take advantage of AI on Mars so that it can make fast decisions, that means that you have to give up your control. Uh, and the same thing happens in brain-gene relationship. The genes basically have to give up certain control so that it allows the brain to make its own decisions. Uh, because, you know, on average, statistically speaking, that's going to be better for the genes as well. But there'll be always exceptions because as a, as a decision maker, decision making researchers, we all know this, right? The outcome doesn't justify, you know, outcome doesn't tell you whether that decision was a good decision or not because things are stochastic. So the fact that you got bad results doesn't necessarily mean that you made a bad decision yeah. because, you know, hindsight is always twenty twenty <laughs> In brains. Anyway, the, what, what does it mean? Uh, another principle is, uh, another assumption is that the principal controls the contract between the principal mm-hmm. and agent. What does that mean in terms of in terms of brains and genes? So that is a superiority for the principal, right? So you know the agent has more information. Uh, so then, what's the role of principal? Principal is the one that's actually filling out the details of the contract. Um, so it presents a condition of the contract to the agent. An agent doesn't have the ability to like revise a contract to its own liking. Mm-hmm. It had, can only either accept or, you know, a veto. <laughs> uh, and that's uh, the reason why that's the case is I, is is because uh, this is my understanding that the principal agent theory is really trying to come up with a prescription for the principal, right? You know, what the principal should do uh, to sort of you know maximize the efficiency of um, cooperation. And again, this is, I think this also fits well in, in neuroscience, uh, because how the brain develops is really, it's not entirely, but largely specify the genes. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why different animals have different shapes of different sizes and different shapes of the brain because they have different genes. So that I think is another sort of, you know, correspondence between principal and, uh, agent theory and, Brain uh, gene relationship. So it controls the contract, and in the contract, it says you will not use contraceptives, and the brain can break that contract because uh, it always it's free to break any contracts. I suppose not exactly because the you know the contracts are not to be broken. Well, one it, of the things that I yeah one of the one of the things that I uh, explain in the book is that it's not desirable. It's actually it's not beneficial for the genes to specify. Uh, what the brain should do at the level of individual behaviors, right. like the contraceptive example that you gave, uh, because uh, if if it does it, it's very likely in an environment where taking exactly the same action could be good, depending upon the circumstances. Right. And in some other cases, it could be a bad behavior. And the whole reason why you are developing the brain is because brain can make that choice. Fast. Depending upon, yeah, fast, exactly, depending upon how the situation changes. And therefore, um, the genes should not control the, uh, the what the brain should do at that level. You should specify to the brain as to what kind of outcomes you should try to get, you know, try to get good food or try to find a good mate, but uh, you should not be controlling such details. 
So do you see genes as being slow, intelligent processes? So I had uh, Tony Zader on the show, and he talks about how evolution is basically just a slow development of intelligent priors, and that throughout our life, we actually learn a lot less um, on top of those priors than maybe we give the priors credit for. That most, the vast, vast majority of our learning has been programmed through our genes, through evolution. Is that the way you view it? Yes, I, I completely agree with that view. And, uh, you know, learning and evolution are, in a way, fundamentally the same process that are unfolding at, you know, two different time scales, right? So uh, if evolution can take place on a millisecond by millisecond basis, then you wouldn't need any learning <laughs> unless the learning can occur in a microsecond. Oh, yeah, know, right. Resolution. Yeah, this kind of, this stuff blows my mind. It's wonderful. Okay, so that's brains and genes. Uh, but you make the case also that there's a principal agent relationship to be had between humans and AI. Can you mm-hmm. maybe just elaborate on that? It's basically the same logic, right? So you wouldn't build an AI unless you're, you know, doing that in a laboratory or for fun. Unless that AI has a certain advantage, can handle solve solve the problems uh, in a, in a certain context better than we are, and one thing that distinguishes AI than other you know machines like motors and things like that that humans have built before is that this is an information processing uh, machine, and therefore the the amount of information that the AI must be collecting. Uh, and this is a, already a problem for AI, right? It has a, too much information, more information than, than right. the brains have. Right. Um, so, <laughs> uh, you know, if you actually examine these um, um, sort of assumptions in principal-agent relationship, AI, the relationship between the humans and AI actually also satisfy, I think, all of them. And that means that, again, this theory can actually have a applica- applic- application, not just in economics, but not, you know, and not just in biology, but also in AI. Another, so we'll move on from the principal agent in just a second. I just, I just think it's a really neat way to approach um, thinking about this. You talk in the book about uh, the difference between germline cells and somatic cells that they have this principal agent relationship. Um, you know, and you make the point that when we die, uh, our thoughts die with our somatic nervous system, mm-hmm. whereas our genes are passed on in our germline cells. Uh, however, what about, so, so our thoughts die is kind of what, um, jumped out as the neat conclusion there. But then I thought, well, we have language and we have memes and things like that, that are passed on through, well, I don't know about if memes, yeah, I suppose memes get passed on through generations, but, but through processes like language, we, uh, can pass our thoughts on through generations. Is that an exception or how, how would you... Uh, account for that in the so it's not an exception i thought about a lot uh, i thought about um the memes a lot uh, mm-hmm. while i was writing writing this book and um you know hesitated a lot as to whether i should mention memes in the book i i didn't uh and part of the reason is because um it would have taken me a lot more time to actually have come up with a uh consistent explanations that that i would be satisfied you know that i could be satisfied with right uh, because, um, you know, I, I obviously give a, you know, a lot of credit, uh, to Richard Dawkins because he's the one that actually kind of sort of, you know, brought to many people's attention that the relationship between the gene and the brain, uh, is like the principal agent relationship. Mm. And again, you know, he's the one who developed the concept of memes, but 
uh, the reason why I uh, didn't go deeply into memes is because it's still not clear to me as to whether memes just an analogy uh, or whether it actually has a certain valid uh, scientific structure so that actually it can produce uh, meaningful predictions. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I still haven't finished that thought. It just, uh, it just occurred to me that, and this is completely off the cuff, so I apologize if it seems extremely naive, but uh, language and memes could be a part of a uh, social sh- structure, right? So that we have a principal-agent relationship. Our individual thoughts, let's say, have that would be the principal, and the agent would be society in that terrible analogy, right? So the memes are in the societal, the social structure, the memes and language, and there is mm-hmm. um, back and forth communication. Like I said, it's off the cuff and a naive. Uh, <laughs> it, it's yeah, I think it sounds. It, I think it's fascinating to think think along those lines, right? Because one reason why the theory and analogies are helpful is especially for the case of analogy even though it it's not the end goal in science in other words we don't, we're not we shouldn't be satisfied if you come up with a good analogy because uh we, we need right. to test it and theorize it more rigorously but uh science, both scientific theories and analogies are useful in that it generates new possibilities right so new theoretical possibilities in that sense uh the kinds of things that you just mentioned i think are fascinating in other words is there another level where you can find a principal agent relationship, you know, in human societies and beyond, and you can consider, try to find, you know, position things like language and cultural transmission in a more, you know, mathematically rigorous, um, theory, theoretical framework. That'll be, that'll be fascinating. Yeah. And then you can go the other way and then you end up at the original principle, the Lord, right? <laughs> Just, sorry. No. <laughs> Just. I see. Uh, the Lord, I see. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So I'd like to steal. Uh, yeah, no, I, I always like to bring it back to the Lord. Yeah. Um, all right. So, so that's, that's fascinating. I really like the, the principal agent, um, way of thinking about these things. And I think you make good cases in the book, uh, for this being a useful structure, a useful theory to, uh, approach, uh, evolution of, of intelligence. So. But let's move on, and I want to talk on one more major uh, topic that you've written about in the book. And if, like I said, we're skipping over so much, so it's ridiculous. But uh, I know that you have long had, well, you even said it in the beginning, you've long had an interest in consciousness and awareness and self-awareness. Um, it's interesting to me that some people seem to have no problem accounting for our self-awareness, like our phenomenal uh, consciousness. Others like me seem to forever end up with this question. You know, you talk about some cognitive function and then it's related to consciousness. And then you, there's always that, there is always quote unquote the hard problem, right? Where you end up, well, mm-hmm. why would we actually need consciousness for that? Why would we need self awareness for that? Um, so, h- how do you see self awareness relating, relating to intelligence? Right. So, I'd like to separate consciousness and self awareness. Okay. And you might have noticed that I never talk about consciousness in this book. I did. It's it's self-awareness. Yeah. Self-reflection and self-awareness. And metacognition. Because, uh, exactly. Because um, uh, I I may change my view, uh, but still, currently, you know, even at least now, I don't think that consciousness is a, is a, could be a topic of scientific investigation. And that's because it's entirely subjective. You know, the thing that you're trying to study uniquely in consciousness is entirely subjective. Everything else you can study 
can be studied objectively, like memory, attention, perception, motor control, decision-making. All of these things can be probed. Even cognition about our cognition, metacognition. Metacognition, exactly. So we can study self-awareness, and you know, we can just ask you know, questions to humans, and we can also study this in animals as to whether they're aware of the expected outcomes of their um, decision-making. We studied confidence, uh, which is a part of metacognition in animals. We can ask them to report how confident you are about the decisions that you made. Um, and therefore, there exist these uh, operational, so, you know, scientific uh, approach that you can take to study self-awareness uh, in scientific experiments. But I don't think that we have scientific, scientifically valid method to study the subjective aspect of consciousness, such as qualia. I think I, and, and everyone has slightly different definitions of all of these terms, of course, but I, I lump awareness into phenomenological subjective consciousness, awareness, right? So, mm -hmm. so self-awareness to me involves consciousness, right? So, but, but you're using it operationally to mean essentially metacognition, right? Cognitive functions about other cognitive functions. Mm -hmm. And so, that's right. So one needs not invoke phenomenal aware, phenomenological awareness. That's right. Okay. Yes, exactly. Because to me, it's conceivable that some agent animals Humans have self-awareness without having phenomenological okay. consciousness. That's a definitional thing. So, right, I think it is. Yeah, yep. But you know, if it's a definitional thing, and if there is no compelling empirical argument that you can make as to why you need to have that second concept, then you know, Occam's razor is on my part, right? So the reason why I think that side, you know, we don't need uh, to study consciousness is because we are, we are already studying everything else that people that are studying consciousness are studying um, <laughs> without using the term consciousness. I know, but then there's that extra bit that is so interesting that no one had... Except that, that extra bit is zero. <laughs> so, okay, do you, well, you think it's not... So I thought what you were saying is that we are not at a point where we can scientifically study it yet. But maybe what you're saying is that it is not a thing, consciousness is not a thing. I don't know, maybe I'm a zombie. Maybe I'm the, the mutant that has no consciousness. And therefore, don't understand what somebody's uh, referring to when they say uh, that you know consciousness is separate from the the whole collection of everything everything else that neuroscientists studying these days. Uh oh, he opened the closet door of his philosophical closet and peeked out everybody right. with his zombiness. Ex exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, because I can't tell as to whether you're a zombie or not. But you don't think we can make you don't think we can make meaningful progress understanding what the right question is to ask because you know there's plenty of scientific inquiry into consciousness mm -hmm. uh, and you know p people can argue about whether it's valid or actually making progress or if it's really just ma in masked and just studying these lower level uh processes like you just said because right. everything we're studying is what consciousness studies study also <laughs> Right. So I, I, you know, I, I, you might know this. I privately, I've been talking about consciousness a lot, you know, you know, in a dinner with speakers, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but I, I haven't really spoken about, mm. you know, my view on consciousness in, in, in public. This may be the first time. And, uh, I think there's, and therefore I'd like to be a little more cautious. Sure. Um, and I think there is a, it's, it, it, to me, this actually might somewhat be some maybe somewhat similar to the problem or the possibility of multiverse in physics 
that I think it's somewhat similarly controversial. In other words, you know, I think a lot of physicists are hesitant in, you know, making comments about multiverse because how do you know, <laughs> you know, whether there's yeah. other alternative universe when you can take zero measurement about it? It's a merely theoretical possibility. Um, and, but, you know, what's a merely theoretical possibility may change, um, later. But there's mathematics for it. And there's not even really mathematics for consciousness. Per That's se. right. So, in a way, consciousness is in a worse shape than uh, multiverse. Right. Uh, if there is a already some mathematical, um, you know, uh, theory about multiverse, uh, I'm not, I'm not, um, you know, an expert in mathematical theories of multiverse. Uh, I'm but not either, but if somebody, yeah, yeah. yeah, but if somebody gives me a mathematical theory of consciousness that has a testable elements, that is not currently testable, but specifies the conditions in which we can test, you know, later with better technology. I, I would, I'll be much more interested in that. But uh, currently, the only thing that I see in the discussion or explanation of consciousness that is not covered by other things like attention, memory, right. perception, et cetera, et cetera, is the qualia. Mm -hmm. And whether that exist um or how we would confirm its existence existence is a completely because it's purely subjective um, exactly yeah. so i thought about you know while i was writing the book i thought about a consciousness of bacteria a lot even though i said ah. nothing of it yeah like panpsychism yes exactly or biopsychism it's called if it's in living objects it's biopsychism so that we don't have to but say then i also thought about the consciousness of rock too did you okay right? yeah yes because i thought about the consciousness of hydrogen atom the first thing that we started talking about today right it's oh it is gonna go back to hydrogen atoms yeah. yes in a way you know i i so panpsychism and multiverse have some similarity too yeah, that, that the problem with panpsychism, and we don't have to go down this road much. To me, one there are two issues I have with panpsychism, as as I understand it, because I think that there are even different versions of panpsychism. One mm -hmm. is that it it doesn't explain anything. If you if it's true, it explains that's, nothing, right? That's my point. But the other thing is, let's say it's a uh, so panpsychism is real. That means not only is the rock conscious, does not only does the rock have consciousness, but then the rock and the single atom right next to it, that entity has consciousness. And half of the rock has consciousness because there's no discrepancy between uh, objects if everything has consciousness. So then everything explodes and, and we end up in a multiverse again anyway. <laughs> so I guess it's- Yes. Yeah. So that that's uh, disturbing to me, which is why I don't talk about consciousness. Okay. Okay. Well, let's bring it back then to metacognition and- uh, what you call self-awareness and self-reflection, because you talk about how it may be the highest form of uh, intelligence. Um, why do you say that? Well, it may be one of the highest forms of intelligence. And the reason I consider that uh, to be one of the highest forms of intelligence is because it is uh, it evolved to deal with social cognition. Right. So, so the, one of the points that you make in the book is that our self-reflection is likely a product of our social cognition. Right. Because my, my hypothesis is that, again, this is probably not my own hypothesis. I'm sure there are people who have made similar points in the past, is that um, you know, social cognition is much harder than solving problems only in the physical environment. Uh, and that's because, you know, by definition, social beings have their own intelligence, right? So they, they're trying to solve their own problems. And in order to make the predictions about the outcomes of your own social, you know, behaviors, you actually have to have a good theories and models about how other agents will behave. This leads to recursion. 
you know, what do I think about what you think about what I think about, et cetera, et cetera. I know that you know that I know that you know. Exactly. So, uh, since that's a complicated problem, uh, and I kind of am very sympathetic to the view that uh, in, in social cognitive neuroscience, the default mode of operation of the human brain is actually social. You, intuitively, you can sort of see that because, again, in, with, with the potential pitfalls of introspections, so when I think about things just kind of sort of in a freeform style, most of the things that I think about are social things, right? I think about the podcast that I was going to have today. Most of our behaviors are social behaviors. Um, and this is a, something that I think uh, will actually uh, become, you know, much more important in the field of AI as well. Uh, because I, it's my impression that part of the reason why self-driving cars are much harder problems than some other people thought earlier is because without social cognition, this is not going to work mm. because it has to be able to make predictions about, you know, what the driver is going to do. Is it going to turn to the left or right? Uh, you can't get that information only by analyzing the motions of the wheels of the other vehicles. You have to look at their eye, you know, gaze uh, positions and um, whether that driver looks angry or not. This is all in the domain of social cognition. So again, when you're uh, in the social domain, recursion is a huge problem. And therefore, there is a need to have an accurate model about other agents. But if you're in a society where you and others have the same hardware, like in human society, then once you actually have that, have that good model about other uh, agents, that means that you actually have a pretty good model about yourself. There is a huge benefit in being able to predict the, predict the behaviors of other agents. Uh, and therefore, if you have a system or um, a life form that has developed that ability, then it's relatively easy to see that uh, one benefit of that is 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 that now you actually you can understand yourself as well because we all have the same hardware. Well, so understand yourself, but in that sense, that self awareness, that self reflection, that self conception is about a simulation of other people, but that other people is you. Exactly, is the self. So 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 self reflection yes. to you is a simulation of. What happens to be you, <laughs> or what? That's right. What we, what, what is essentially constructed as you, as you uh, through the simulation. Exactly. So this this may be you know harder to prove scientifically, but I think it's fascinating to think about that possibility that what you may be thinking about you may be in fact what you might be speculating what others might be thinking about you. Oh, yeah. Well, there, then it's an infinite recursion. Eventually. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. But we do things like this so naturally, right? In other words, it's not hard for us to think about, you know, what I think about, what you might think about me. Right. We get that immediately. Right. That means we can also be extremely wrong about ourselves relative to whatever, relative to what our genes want, especially to bring it back to the principal-agent relationship, Right. It's interesting and frustrating to think that my thoughts about myself are really about a simulation I'm running about someone else that I conceive of uh, as myself, and on and on. <laughs> All right. One other thing I wanted to uh, touch on in the book is the the idea of negative emotions that um, that we have to have negative emotions. Uh, intelligence isn't all rosy, and you talk about the costs uh, of being intelligent. So just to take negative emotions as an example, uh, what role does negative uh, emotions play in intelligence? Right. So one of the things that I mentioned in the book is that the negative emotions 
such as regret, uh, disappointment, and jealousy. Those are the three examples that I gave in the book. Uh, have similar uh, benefits of physical, you know, compared to physical pain. And when I was a child, one of the aunts of my best friend had a condition called analgesia. Uh. And it was mind-boggling because she could just go in and pick up a hot pot without any facial expression. Uh, and I was like, wow, she's a Superman. Uh, oh. you know, how, I would like to be like that, uh, because <laughs> I could then, I will, I won't be afraid of like, you know, um, like getting cut and I could be like a, you know, feel this, uh, soldier. Um, Oof. and yeah. until, you know, many, until many years later when I studied uh, psychology and biology, I really didn't understand the, the problems with that condition. And that is that. Uh, the reason why, and that kind of sort of, you know, made me realize as to why, uh, pains are important. And because it's a protection, uh, mechanism, protective mechanism, right? So if you don't have ability to feel pain, that means that, you know, you won't be, uh, trying to avoid any situations where there'll be physical harms unless you're like, you know, um, deliberately reminding yourself all the time mm-hmm. that this is basically what you have to avoid. And I think that, um, uh, negative emotions basically serve the same role that, uh, you know, what, what depending upon, um, the kinds of, uh, decisions that you make. So one of the things that I talk a lot about in the book is diversity, a multitude of algorithms that the brains deploy to make different, uh, decision making. And that's pro- probably both the product of evolution and probably the, 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 the computational necessity that it's hard to come up with a single algorithm that can solve all the problems. Mm-hmm. And therefore you just uh, sort of have a collection of different algorithms that are specialized to different circumstances. And all of these algorithms need negative feedback. In other words, they should somehow uh, know that something goes wrong. Uh, and that's, you know, required that they need to retune themselves. Uh, they have to, um, uh, change their strategies and, uh, all these. The reason why, uh, humans have many different kinds of negative emotions is because they're all tied to different, you know, specific computational algorithms. Uh, so for example, you know, if you're familiar with, uh, model free versus model based reinforcement learning algorithm, uh, mm-hmm. then it's easy to kind of see the, uh, the correspondence between, you know, reward prediction error, uh, versus, uh, disappointment. Uh, so disappointment is a, is an emotion that you get when the outcome of your choice is worse than what you expected. Which is model free reinforcement learning. Which comes yeah. from the, uh, yeah, this class of, uh, learning algorithms that people refer to as a model free, uh, because you don't need complicated model of the world in order to run this algorithm. But there is another class of, uh, learning algorithms called model based reinforcement learning algorithm, where actually you have pretty detailed description of the world that you're in. Uh, and you can actually use that model to try to predict the outcome of your behavior by simulating. Yeah, but yeah, exactly. By simulating what the world would be if I take this action. And that actually creates the opportunity to have a uh, hypothetical negative prediction error, right? So you realize that even after you take an action that, oh, I could have gotten a better outcome uh, had I taken a different action. Again, these are these kinds of kind of factual thinking. We do it all the time, mm-hmm. uh, which is in a way proof that, uh, you know, everybody has ability to the model, model-based reinforced learning. And that error signals completely, you know, it's fundamentally different. And it's basically what people refer to as a regret. In other words, we get regret, even though actually your outcome was better than what you expected. So it's easy to see that regret and uh, disappointment 
are orthogonal. They could happen independently. You could have regret only, or you could have disappointment only. Yeah, you talk about um, some clinical evidence for this in the book as well. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. And then jealousy is another example. That's a negative, uh, uh, you know, emotion that's unique to a social situation. You could be happiest man in the world until you realize that you know there's somebody else got a better deal, and then you. <laughs> yeah. So, so then the take home really is that negative emotions are a fallout from the variety, the multitude of learning algorithms that are competing uh, in our brains. Yes. So, Dale, finally, um, just to bring it back to the this notion of AI and intelligence, you one of the things that you end the book with. Uh, is I'll just read this quote, actually. There's a warning uh, toward the end of the book. If we want to remain as the principal in our relationship with AI, we should not create machines that can reproduce themselves without human intervention. So you don't want to make uh, self-replicating AI. That's the fear that once you do that, once AI acquires the status of life, then it, it could be beyond our control and they would no longer be the agents in our principal agent relationship. That's the thought. Yes. So, um, if I have an ability, basically order such machines to be manufactured right now that can begin to self-replicate themselves, uh, I would not do that. Um, but that's might be because I have very limited imagination. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe there is a, you know, uh, much greater benefit that could be realized. Uh, for example, I don't think that you could upload your mental phenomena because I don't want to use the word consciousness into uh-huh. into a machine. Um, <laughs> but, you know, maybe if that's possible, maybe some people want to do that. But I don't think it's possible. I think me is me. I don't think this could be, um, you know, transferred to another machine. Um, because if, if that's – so, you know that um, teletransportation occurs in the Star Trek. Right. Yeah. And one of the, one of the mysteries in the, in the, in the, uh, teletransportation in Star Trek is that, well, if they can teletransport, why don't you multiply yourself? In other words, there is absolutely no reason, at least in, 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 in our imagination as to why the first copy should be destroyed. Right. And I think the reason why they create a teletransportation where the original copy is always destroyed is because I think things get pretty chaotic and, our minds just cannot, you know, catch up with the possibility that you could multiply yourself. Well, yeah. Uh, in other words, your 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 mind, your identity. This this is from self identity work. This is work from Derek Parfit, actually a philosopher uh, mm-hmm. who only recently passed away. But if you want to uh, go go down that road philosophically, I, I recommend uh, his work because it's exactly. Oh yeah, that'll be, that'll, yes, that'll be. Maybe I heard about it indirectly already, but you know, I, yeah, I'd like I would like to actually uh, learn more about it. So that. You know, I think it's something that's really fascinating that uh, even if you can copy yourself, I don't think that actually your your self-awareness will multiply. I think you'll remain as you because you can do a thought experiment. If somebody has a has that technology and suddenly copies myself on the opposite side of the universe, will I know that before I die? Probably not. So this is another sort of, you know, why things like this actually can become very similar to multiverse because mm. it's, uh, it might be a product of just limited human intelligence. In other words, we can think of these things because somehow it serves some useful purpose of simulating other minds, but it may not have any rea- reality basis. Makes me think of, uh, I was going to ask you about the idea of, you know, why aren't brains, why haven't they just 
evolved even further? Why aren't we super intelligent already? And uh, my guess is your answer would be because there's costs to intelligence and the agent in a principal-agent relationship uh, can't run away with it because they are under the contractual control of the principal in that case. And so it actually doesn't confer benefits to the principal if a brain was going to run wild and become super, super intelligent. Am I on track? Yes, that's. I agree with that. Okay. So, man, so we're kind of fundamentally limited. I mean, our technology might uh, open that, open up such possibilities again someday. Much of the chagrin of our genes, perhaps. Right. So that's that's the risk that you might have to take because, um, you know, as we discussed earlier, principal-agent relationship, one of the implications, one of the assumptions is that you have to delegate. In other words, you have to lose the control. So do we want to give that up comp- completely? And do we want to basically give up the ability to even write the contract? Um, right. And then, you know, we, we, we're in a way getting rid of the principal, uh, principal relationship and we're basically beginning to treat AI as another, another principle. So I think that's just, um, too wild to think about. <laughs> it's wild. Yeah. It's a, it's a really, it's a fun book that you wrote. Uh, is it before we leave off talking specifically about the book? I, I have a few more general qu- questions, but so we hit sort of the, the main topics that I wanted to hit and it, look, it took us this far already, this long already. Like I, that's why I tried to not put everything in that I wanted to put in. But are there uh, some main ideas or anything that we didn't talk about that you'd like to um, sort of highlight that you think is important that we that we missed? Um, well, so I guess I would like to add a sort of one short comment, and that is that um, even though we talked a lot about evolution, uh, you know, AI and you know, awareness and things like that, I'm a neuroscientist. So yeah, well, the bulk of the book are so many examples from the neurosciences. Uh, right. Yeah. Right. So, so we, did, we didn't cover a lot of those, but if somebody wants to um, understand why neuroscientists actually has to write such a book, then I would recommend my book <laughs> because yeah. I, think, I think these are all obviously tied to sort of, you know, the constraints and the mechanisms uh, in, in the brain. And I think that pointing out those problems rather than just having a pure philosophical discussion was actually was the reason why I wrote the book. Yeah. Like I said, we just touched on <laughs> a few of the formalisms that you introduce in the book to think about these things. So, so again, thanks for writing the book. Well, I was looking at your Twitter. Is that David Hume's picture that you use? No, actually, that's, um, that's a Brahe. Oh, it's Tico Brahe? Yes, it's a Tico Brahe. Okay. Uh, let me explain that first because okay. uh, I'm not handsome, so I didn't want to put my picture <laughs> oh, uh, on, in, 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 the, in the Twitter. So I was like, okay, so who, who, I, who, I, who do I respect? Who's my, my role model? Oh, I thought you were going to say, what, what famous uh, astronomist was super handsome? Oh, Tico no, Brahe. That's no, <laughs> no. I, I think he's actually not very handsome either. Right, <laughs> uh, but the reason the reason you know if you're if you know if you're a student of you know history of science you know his significance. Basically, he was the last astronomer before the the telescopes were invented, uh, and his the data that he collected basically led to the Copernican um, uh, revolution and Galileo and Newton. So he's sort of a origin of modern science. And I think that I feel sort of like that. In other words, I don't know what I'm doing. Mm. I'm just collecting a lot of data. Oh, interesting. Uh, and I'm hoping that someday, maybe a few generations later, um, at least some of the data that I or someone like me collected might play some role. So that's my wishful thinking. And that's why I have his picture. 
Well, let me let me hold you there for one second and ask you another question then about collecting mm-hmm. data, because this comes up a lot on the show as well. You know, if we're if we have the right balance of data collecting, experimentation, uh, and theory, and most often people say, well, most if I say what do we need more of, people say yes to all of it. But then if if you go down on one side or the other, everyone says, well, there's what we're lacking in neuroscience is theory. And that's what we need is we need better theory. We need theory. And what you just said is like, you don't know. You're just collecting data, which is not true because you even talk about theories in your book. Uh, and, and you have like neuroeconomic, you have game theory to back up a lot of mm-hmm. your experiments and your experimental right. research. Uh, but So where do you land on that spectrum? I mean, this may be completely ignorant, but uh, I have a huge physics envy. Right. And I, I was, we, we talked about this in the beginning that, you know, I, it was, it was pretty depressing back then. I don't, you know, I got over it, but, you know, I, I'm not a genius. Uh, and if you look at, you know, the 20th century physics, it just takes a few. I mean, I may be completely wrong, but my impression is that you have few people that are extremely bright and they can figure it out. But what they need is a data. But I think that, um, um, for mortals like me, um, mortals is that what you- yes the, yeah. you know for most people uh, uh-huh. I think yeah, that you're just average there you go yeah, yeah exactly so yeah, for right. 99.9% of the scientists um, I think the best you could do is to generate high quality data that will make sense to hmm. somebody who's smart enough to figure it out yeah doing, doing the data I mean doing experiments to produce a lot of data takes a lot of money a lot of effort a lot of time a uh, lot of trial and errors and without those data, I don't think you can expect to have a good theory. I'm going to have um, Steve Grossberg on soon. And he talks about, uh, and I'm going to ask him about this as well, about the history of physics and how, you know, physicists used to be also interested in psychology. Uh, but like what happened was, part of what happened was that there, there's, there's non-linearities in mm-hmm. networks of brains. And the physics side of math uh, is vastly linear. Uh, it, it was. And when nonlinearities started being introduced, uh, it's, it's kind of broke the physicists off from studying mind and psychology uh, because there was already a mathematical framework that existed for them to study physical properties, uh, properties of, of the universe. So it was a lot more direct for a physicist or for a someone an, a scientist to study physical systems because the math framework was already there. The theory was already there. I mean, you can have your theory, but the mathematical theory was already there to use to explain. Like he makes a point, even Einstein, um, his uh, use of tensors, uh, you know, he just went to a math guy. And he's like, look, I need something to explain this. And the math person helped him, introduced him to this tensor geometry, right? But neuroscience doesn't have a mathematical framework. And I think that's super interesting to think about it in those terms where, so in physics, there's always theory and experimentation and there's these two separate fields. Whereas in neuroscience, we're kind of all either, we're kind of all both, right? Theorists, half theorist, half experimenter. And maybe that's no good. I mean, there are pure theorists and and I don't know if there are pure experimenters because you, you have to have something that you're, you know, uh, grappling with theory-wise. Anyway, um, I just thought that was an interesting take on the history of, you know, he, t- he brings up people like Helmholtz, who studied um, both physical prop- physics and, and psycho- uh, psychological processes, but ended up studying mostly physics because the math wasn't there for the psychological processes. Right. I digress, but... I'd like to actually make one comment. Please. And that is that I think there is a 
fundamental difference between the role of math in physics and role of math in biology, uh, which obviously includes neuroscience. And that is that, Mm -hmm. you know, the essence of biology is diversity, uh, whereas essence of physicists is like universality. Yes, yes. I mean, even though I have physics envy, and I think we every, most people agree is that physics is the sort of best example of science. Uh, I don't think you can extrapolate everything from physics to sort of more advanced form of neuroscience because we cannot ignore diversity. And so we need a, a mathematical, theoretical basis of diversity, and that's happening with complexity theory, mm-hmm. complexity yep. science. Uh, and things of that nature. So that's right. Um, okay. Anyway, your Twitter profile is you're a neuroscientist and a DJ, and we've we've talked a little bit about your DJing. And in fact, I put on your music the other day when I was working, and it was delightful. It it's it was really good uh, background well, thank music. Thank you. Um, I mean, it's a little distracting <laughs> because I knew it was you, so I was listening to it more than you know. But I, so I could kind of go in and out of focus. But um, you stay up all hours of the night. Uh, working on this music stuff. And uh, w- so what role does music play? Do, are you an artist or are you a scientist or is that a meaningless distinction? So uh, we talked about this offline actually a little bit. Mm-hmm. You know, what's the relationship between arts and science? I continue to think about this actually since since we talked about this last time. And I think the, the thing that binds, that belongs to both of these is a creativity that we are not happy with the explanation that we're given. You know, we get tired of the song once we listen to it a few times, even if it's the best song in the world. Uh, so we constantly need uh, novel and more, you know, um, beautiful uh, theories and, you know, music and paintings, et cetera, et cetera. And how do, you cre- how do you become creative? And I think that is, again, related to our self-awareness. In other words, before you can actually produce something, you think about it, you simulate it in your head, and then choose among many different possibilities that this actually will look good if I actually give it a physical sort of substrate to it, whether it's a sound or, you know, uh, physical structure, you know, other physical structures like, you know, vis- you know visual forms, et cetera, et cetera. So I tend to think that um, if you take a, you know, talented artist and give them a scientific training, they could probably be a decent scientist and vice versa. You know, but you have to specialize because actual techniques that you have to acquire are very different. So I, I sort of going back and forth between music production and, um, it's hard for me to say it's a music production, but I, <laughs> I'd like, I'd like to produce some music. Your heart is in it. No, I, I have, my heart is definitely in it. And the papers that I write, I see a lot of similarities and some, you know, something goes more easily when I'm trying to make music. Something goes more easily when I'm trying to write a paper. Right. Um, but, uh, there, there's a pleasant sort of aspect to both of those, which both of which I enjoy. Uh, and the other thing is that this may be why I had difficult time, you know, when I was in college as to whether I want to be a musician or a scientist, because I, I really, really like both. So uh, as I get older, especially when my father uh, started telling me when he after, shortly after he turned 70, uh, that he was he's getting really frustrated because his piano skills not improving, but he didn't start practicing piano until when it turned 70. Mm-hmm. So that's when I realized that, oh, if I want to do mu- any music, I should start soon. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah, yeah. you're, you're what, 74 now? Is that? Uh, yeah, yeah, something like that. Something close to that? Yeah. <laughs> no, I think about that stuff too, as my guitar collects dust, you know. Oh, you up. should you should, you should, should start that too. So I, I started practicing guitar uh, actually almost exactly 10 years ago. Wow. I remember in your office, you had your guitar there and you were very That's proud right. of it. 
that was almost yep. 10 years ago, maybe that I was mm -hmm. in your office. Yes. Yeah. So, but, but you've transitioned because now you have racks and racks and cords and plugs and everything beeps and whistles and uh, whirs and whizzes. And, uh, and in the video, you can see, you know, your hands are coming in and out and you're switching yep. things and like, uh, it's all, it looks like chaos to me, but you know what you're doing. Right. It's called modular synthesizers. Modular synthesizers. Yep. So I was pra just practicing guitar, you know, for, for a few years. And then I, you know, started recording music. And then I found that actually recording and producing music is, is a fascinating. And I got more interested in synthesizers because, you know, we don't have enough, I don't, I don't have enough time to learn 10 different instruments, but, uh, right. dealing with synthesis is actually a lot uh, faster. Uh, you can learn how to use a new synthesizer in a few minutes if you're, uh, if you're lucky. Um, so if you want to sort of produce a lot of sounds in, in your music, synthesizers obviously is the way to go. And when I started reading books about the history of synthesizers, I saw a lot of parallel between music technology and neuroscience. So, for example, you might be familiar with window discriminators. And there are actually window discriminator modules in modular synthesizer. And I saw that I was like, wow, these things are converging. Window discriminators to sort your spikes and things like uh, sort your different neurons. Exactly. You're it's a, it's a one of the neurons. ways that you can trans, you know, trans, translate between analog signals to digital signals. And, you know, modular synthesizer is a combination of both digital and analog technology. Mm -hmm. The sound is obviously generated using analog circuits in most cases, but the controlling it is done by digital technology. So it has a lot of, it sort of gives you a lot of interesting things to speculate about how the brain might have evolved and what, ah. what's the parallel between, you know, synthesizers <laughs> and brain. So I, I really, really enjoy it. I tell you what, uh, first of all, thank you for coming on the show. Uh, I've enjoyed this conversation immensely. Instead of my usual outro music, what I could do is play some uh, Daoli, some, you know, uh, maybe one of your compositions. How would you feel about that as the outro to the episode? Oh, that sounds risky, but I'll leave it up to you. <laughs> Thanks, Dale. This was fun. Thanks for having me. This was, uh, this was a lot of fun. I had to uh, get rid of some inhibition to talk about some of the things that we discussed, but this was still fun. Brain Inspired is a production of me and you. I don't do advertisements. You can support the show through Patreon for a trifling amount and get access to the full versions of all the episodes, plus bonus episodes that focus more on the cultural side but still have science. Go to braininspired.co and find the red Patreon button there. To get in touch with me, email paul at braininspired.co. Thank you for your support. See you next time.